Hi, I'm Natalie Moore in for Jen White, and this is Reset. Gentrification has become a hot-button issue in American cities and a term that's thrown around in housing circles, politics, and beyond. But it's a far more complicated force than some of the talking points suggest. In his new book, Newcomers, Gentrification and Its Discontents, Matthew Sherman examines what's driven gentrification in San Francisco, Brooklyn, New York, and Chicago over the past 60 years. Sherman grew up in Chicago's Hyde Park neighborhood, and he's a senior editor in the newsroom of WNYC, New York Public Radio. He joins me now to talk about his book, Welcome to Reset. Thanks for having me, Natalie. Well, let's start with the word gentrification. It is such a loaded term. What is your definition in the book? I just take what I think is a pretty simple definition. It's basically the process by which a neighborhood would go from being poor to wealthy, basically. I mean, I put in some parameters there, say it has to be below the median income for the for the entire metro area to above the median income. Uh, but that's basically what it is, uh, a neighborhood going from poor to rich. Uh, and I'm talking here about the residents. So there are a lot of other things people add to that gentrification equation, such as the changing retail landscape, the appearance of, of uh, coffee shops, bookstores, twee little clothing stores, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I think that that happens, but it sort of happens as a result of the changing demographic. And right, it, there, there's something physical that that people see or having a response to, but you don't walk away with um, this very binary gentrification is good, gentrification is bad. How do you regard this force? Right, I think that gentrification we would be missing something if we just said it was good or bad. Missing the fact that that it's sort of inevitable, uh, at least in certain cities where there is a growing professional, creative class. This is bigger than any one person, bigger than any one building. It's about really a macroeconomic transformation from the manufacturing corporate economy that we had, uh, like during and shortly after World War II, to this sort of creative information-based economy that we have now. And I say that because a lot of what drives upper-middle-income people to live in cities, to want to live in these core central city neighborhoods, is really a desire to throw off a lot of the baggage that the suburbanization of the country went through and to embrace uh, proximity to work, the vitality of the city, diversity as well. Speaking of suburbanization, your research doesn't start in the present or even 20 years ago, you talk about how this groundwork was laid even 60 years ago. That's right. Uh, I went back to 1950s, uh, the Brooklyn Heights neighborhood in in New York City, and I read a lot of the newspaper, the community newspaper at that time, really noticed how these young marrieds, they called themselves, basically young white professionals, upper middle income, stayed in the city uh, after college, and they moved to Brooklyn Heights as opposed to moving to uh, a suburb, Garden City on Long Island or Hastings on Hudson in Westchester. They rejected suburban 
life. They were sort of nonconformist. They saw themselves as being iconoclastic in some sort of way, and uh, they were very proud of that. They talked about how they, they embraced city life and how city life was better than suburban life. And I think that's really key both for why I start, where, and when I, I did, and also key to understanding this, this entire process that, it, that, as I said before, it has to do with a macroeconomic change that this country has gone through. In Brooklyn Heights, those beautiful brownstones had been divided up into smaller apartments. And then those new marrieds come in and take over those brownstones. So the cycle happens. And I thought a lot about your line, who does a neighborhood belong to? And I think it works both ways. Who does a neighborhood belong to? I think that there is this mistake that we see that some of the people who were encouraging gentrification or encouraging urban renewal, which came before it, sort of the government-mandated removal of of dilapidated homes and uh, replacement with tall, concrete, box-like structures, expressways, that sort of thing. These urban planners at that time looked at these neighborhoods and saw them revive and saw them get prettier and nicer and cleaner. And they thought that they had really accomplished something because their city was somehow coming back. But they sort of forgotten that you might change the physical structure of these buildings, but you're not necessarily improving the lives of the people who live there. In fact, sometimes you're pushing them out. Sort of likewise, now that gentrification has matured to such a degree that we now see this this very virulent backlash to the phenomenon, we have a lot of people, uh, activists, who are claiming that you know this neighborhood belongs to a certain demographic group, but we should remember you know, that neighborhoods are sort of always changing. And uh, as you mentioned, the aristocratic uh, members of Brooklyn Heights, they they left or they lost their fortunes sometimes. Uh, They were replaced by a different population, and then they're being placed again. So now that we see you know, gentrification in this advanced state, I think we have to really recognize that there are definite claims that a, that a neighborhood's residents should have on, on their neighborhood, definite concerns that should be addressed. But we, it's very tricky when we say that this neighborhood belongs to one set of people or another. But when you say that there's a difference between people being displaced and why they feel that ownership versus a ethnic succession in a neighborhood— that's right. Two important words. Again, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding there. If gentrification is just a demographic change from poor to rich, it often gets confused with something called displacement, which actually means pushing people out of their homes uh, because their homes are getting too expensive. Now, that happens, according to academic research, actually less often than many people would think. It happens fairly rarely. Uh, but, of course, it is troubling that it does happen. What often happens much more frequently is something called succession, which is, uh, well, in any neighborhood, there's a certain churn. Maybe about 20% of the population will move every year, believe it or not, in, in some of these neighborhoods. And they leave their apartments vacant. Uh, and in a gentrifying neighborhood, what might be happening is simply wealthier people move into these empty apartments. Or let's say there are warehouses in this neighborhood or vacant lots and new buildings go up or the warehouses are converted and then wealthier people move into these places and the original ethnic group that had been there before becomes diluted and uh, eventually becomes eclipsed by this new group. 
I often say that Chicago's vastness is both its strength and its weakness. Mm-hmm. There are areas that uh, potential gentrifiers are probably never going to touch on the far south side, for example. And we have so much more square, square mileage compared to other cities. What are some of the key differences between how gentrification works in dense urban areas like San Francisco or parts of Brooklyn? One thing I think that we see probably a more rapid pace of gentrification and a sort of desperation on the people who are being pushed out or they feel that they're being pushed out. That definitely happens in places like uh, like like Brooklyn or, or San Francisco. But, you know, Chicago, even though it does, it is very vast and there are certainly plenty of areas that have not been touched by gentrification at all. It had one of the, in the, in the central areas, in the near west and near north sides, if you go back to, uh, you know, the 1950s, uh, early 60s, Lincoln Park was a largely Latino neighborhood. It was where the Young Lords started, actually. But because of uh, first urban renewal and then gentrification, it has become you know overwhelmingly white. And so uh, it is happening here. Sometimes in some places it's happening so slowly, perhaps you don't even notice it. But I would agree that there is a little bit more uh, of a relief valve that if people are being pushed out of their homes, maybe they are having a little easier time than they are in geographically constrained areas uh, like San Francisco or New York. So let's talk about Cabrini Green. Much has been written about that Chicago public housing development and the plan for transformation that started 20 years ago in which high rises were torn down in favor of mixed income communities. What did you learn about Cabrini? I learned uh, a number of things. One, I think I learned that even though growing up in Chicago in the 1970s and 1980s, I, uh, of course, had a very poor impression of public housing in Chicago and maybe understanding of it as well. Uh, One surprising thing, uh, which I think sure you discovered uh, through your reporting as well, perhaps growing up here, is how much the residents in these complexes really consider them home, even though from the outside, uh, from the city planner's perspective, from, you know, maybe the white journalist's perspective, they seem like terrible places to live. And so when you have, I also did not think at that time that that the high rises would ever be torn down. It was like everybody knew they should be torn down, but no one had the guts to do it. So it was very surprising to me. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do my Chicago chapters about this process to actually see that happen. So one of the issues that came up uh, was that people felt, residents, public housing residents, felt, I think, very alienated by this entire process uh, because they felt like their own homes were being treated uh, as something subpar. I also learned that There were three crucial decisions that Chicago, under the second Mayor Daley administration, Richard M. Daley, when he undertook this project in the uh, early 2000s, made three crucial 
decisions, which really affected the outcome. Uh, one of them was to de-densify these footprints. So it was seen that high rises were the problem. High concentration of poor people living together created, uh, you know, safety issues uh, as as well as as just the lack of economic opportunity, education issues in terms of the schools that were located near these places. However, when you de-densify them. And then on top of that, also decide to have mixed income communities take their places. What you're basically doing is reducing the number of CHA residents who could be rehoused in these footprints by about a quarter. And then you have to decide, hey, where are we going to put the other three quarters of people? And that is where the tricky thing came in because the residents were either moved with Section 8 vouchers, uh, federal subsidy vouchers, to other neighborhoods, but they tended to be poor neighborhoods as well, or they were put back in other rehabbed public housing buildings, low-rise public housing buildings elsewhere in the city, often on the very so- very far south side. Uh, so that was those were two things that that were very uh, critical. The the other thing was that they decided to do it in ten years, which, as I discovered, was was pretty much a lark. It was it was a decision, uh, as as one person I spoke with put it, no one be- would believe it if we said we were going to do it in five years, and twenty years would just seem too long and uninteresting. So we chose ten, and of course that hasn't really come to fruition in that short amount of time. It's still going on. And uh, as a result, a lot of the people who lived in these buildings had to be moved out sometimes two or three times before being able to come back to the new mixed income communities. You're from Hyde Park. How did growing up in that neighborhood influence how you took on this issue? Well, Hyde Park has its own history of race, which you touch on a little bit in your book, actually, uh, uh, that's very interesting, sort of predated my time and my understanding of it. Uh, Growing up there, I had the impression that it was a very integrated place, that it was uh, a place where both social, racial, and economic integration could work. However, if you really dig back in the past, you see how closely managed it was uh, during the urban renewal period and how the influence of the University of Chicago sort of kept it that way. Um, But uh, I think a a, a real big uh, influence on me and my choosing this subject was really my my parents, both of whom were social workers, one as a professor at the School of Social Service Administration, the other worked as a social worker at the Mandel Legal Aid Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. And so their dinnertime conversation was, it was largely about housing. Uh, And I learned that housing sort of dictated a lot of one's fate in life, where when nowadays, I think the phrase is... Your zip code. (laughs) Your zip code, exactly. It's sort of a a neologism in in comparison. But, you know, uh, before, especially before magnet schools, uh, you went to your neighborhood school. So if if your neighborhood school was of poor quality, then you weren't going to get a good education. All those sorts of things uh, influenced you. And so I think I, I became very keen about housing, where people live. And um, uh, this topic also interested me is because, you know, growing up in Chicago in the 70s and the 80s, 
cities were the underdog, you know, coming from the South Side, rooting for the White Sox. I sort of thought I knew something about rooting for the underdog. And rooting for cities in that time were, was also like rooting for the underdog. And then many years later, I came back to... Uh, to New York, I happened to move to New York in, in the late 90s, and there was this thriving metropolis, gentrification just going nuts all around, couldn't escape it. Uh, it was no longer the underdog. It was it was the New York Yankees, in a way, of the uh, urban uh, planning world. And I think that this dramatic change from from the city as underdog to the city as, as victor, maybe to a violent degree, uh, was really something that appealed to me. Is it possible for lower-income and higher-income people to live together and benefits from amenities in a transformed neighborhood? And are there examples where you've seen that happening, if so? Well, in my book, I take a look at, as you mentioned, Cabrini-Green. And one thing that the city of Chicago, as well as uh, one of the developers there, Peter Holston, have tried to do is tr- create a mixed-income community. That was the point, right? So they had former CHA residents, other low-income residents, and then uh, middle-income or upper-middle-income residents, uh, and they tried to mix them all together. And there's been some research done on, on how they are all getting along. And unfortunately, uh, at least in this first generation, let's say, uh, since the, the, these mixed-income communities came about, even though they are living together successfully, even though the developer, for example, took great pains to make sure that that he would place a, a, a CHA family right next to or on top of uh, a, a market-rate family, uh, even though he tried to erase all visual distinctions, all visual stigma, which, of course, was one of the issues uh, when public housing existed, uh, that uh, the residents themselves still sort of segregated themselves and identified it themselves uh, in the same sort of way. So in that sense, it doesn't seem like they've gotten to live together very well at all. And they were also stigmatized. Anytime something bad happened, some trash wasn't taken out, they blamed the public housing residents or even how people socialize or commune with family and friends. Uh, Sometimes the upper income residents didn't like how public housing residents lived. Exactly. And there was a lot of visual issues as well. Uh, Holston, for example, the developer wanted to put on a splash pad for youngsters to uh, play around in on hot summer's days. But the market rate developer he was working with was worried about white uh, home customers who were shopping for a home seeing black kids playing on a splash pad and would be turned away from that. So they didn't get to put this splash pad in. Turning to policies that you think have worked, Illinois does not have rent control, and activists are trying to change that. One even told me this is the easiest campaign he's ever worked on (laughs) because he can get signatures. And so it would have to be repealed in Springfield, the, the ban on rent control, that is. What was your conclusion on rent control, and does it stop or slow down gentrification? I think it helps tremendously with displacement, um, if you remember that distinction. Because if you have rent control, that means that your landlord basically has to renew your lease. Uh, 
he or she can maybe charge a little bit more, but uh, that too is regulated. And unless you really fail to pay or break some other rules, you're sort of guaranteed. It's almost like owning your own house in a way. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, you, you know, that's a bulwark against displacement per se. There's still going to be some gentrification because uh, of succession. That is, even with rent control, some people will leave and the new tenants may be of higher income. But, you know, rent control is, uh, is, a, is really a tricky thing. Uh, I mean, I, I think that I come out more favorably towards it than some people. Uh, but um, it's a lot to ask private landlords to take on the burden of housing our, our poor, basically. That's what rent control is about. And that used to be and still is, to some extent, a government function as opposed to something that we should put on a private uh, individual. We've talked a lot about private developers and people who come in to rent and what they're attracted to in a neighborhood. But there's the public sector that plays a role, too. What public policies should not be repeated in cities? One of the things to look out for is any sort of incentive programs that might be given to developers to build in order to stimulate building. Uh, That might be a good thing at the time, and it probably is, but uh, one should keep in mind that the neighborhood may well change, and 20 years from then, you won't need to have that sort of incentive. Sometimes once you put an incentive like that in place, it's very hard to repeal. Um, I think that some government programs are almost culpable for what they do not do. One thing might be zoning, for example. So if you have rules that limit the height of buildings in certain neighborhoods that are desirable neighborhoods, then you're limiting the housing supply in that neighborhood. You're also protecting the people who live there, so it definitely is tricky. And you're also preserving the historic structures, if if that is the case as well. Uh, but uh, what that means is people who want to live in the center of Chicago, want to live, let's say, in that neighborhood, they'll have a hard time doing that because the housing supply will be constricted. And so then they will move to the next neighborhood out and, uh, and essentially gentrify that neighborhood. That's Matthew Sherman, senior editor at WNYC in New York and author of the new book, Newcomers, Gentrification and Its Discontents. Matthew, thanks for joining me here on Reset. Thank you so much for having me. And that's today's Reset. That's right. Just because Jen's out, we're not going to leave you hanging. Look for a fresh pod in your feed tomorrow, too. I'm Natalie Moore in for Jen White, and this is Reset from WBEZ Chicago.